appropriation is more so intentionally taking something and passing it off as something that's yours and not acknowledging the original source or of where that thing may have come from. And the way I understand misappropriation is taking something and profiting from it without crediting or share it, sharing adequate benefits with the knowledge source. Welcome to the Integrative Ideas and in Nutrition podcast. This podcast is produced by the Committee of Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access through the Dietitians in Integrative and Functional Medicine, DIPM, practice group with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Join us to explore a range of whole food therapies and mind-body modalities within different settings and cultures, and to celebrate the ways that our diversity in practice and perspective makes us stronger. Please keep in mind that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Unless specifically stated otherwise, DIFM does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, service, or organization presented or mentioned. My name is Sarah Thompson Fajera, registered dietitian, integrative and functional nutrition certified practitioner, and your host for this podcast. Amina Gaffar is a Lumbee and Black activist from Pembroke, North Carolina. She studied biology at East Carolina University, where she also competed as a pentathlete, heptathlete, 400-meter hurdler, and still holds the school record in the heptathlon. She studied physiology and biophysics with a concentration in integrative medicine at Georgetown University. Amina is an advocate and focuses most of her advocacy on missing and murdered Indigenous people and culturally competent holistic methods to treat historical trauma in marginalized populations. She uses her website, goodmedicinewoman.com, to create content that addresses social justice, finding common humanity between marginalized populations, creating allyship, and misconceptions about Southeastern Indigenous culture. She is also the co-founder of the Coalition for Black and Indigenous Solidarity, a board member on the North Carolina MMIW Coalition, and working as a sexual assault and domestic violence advocate at the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs. She is the primary researcher for Breaths Together for a Change, an Indigenous-centric meditation program. Amina, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So Amina, I want to kick off, of course, uh, branching from your bio to understand more about the experiences that have led you to where you are now. What has been most important in shaping some of your professional interests? Well, I was raised in a predominantly Native American community on the East Coast, and the Native American communities on the East Coast, particularly where I where I am from, are unique because we're not on a reservation system. So, although we are predominantly Native American, we don't we're not on a reservation, so we're not your typical ideal um, remote reservation system. And I just, from a young age, was aware of the disparities around health, especially in my community. And because my mom actually worked in home care and hospice. And so she started an integrative, um, holistic 
healthcare company that addressed the disparities around home care and hospice in our community. And so I've always kind of been interested in medicine. I've always been a science nerd. And so I went to East Carolina and studied biology. And then I found the Georgetown program through a medical development program for doctors of color or future doctors of color. And I found the CAM program. And um, I was really interested in that program because I've always been interested in studying integrative medicine as well. And my grandmother actually has a green thumb. So we'll go to her house and always admire her flowers. And she grows things like catnip and sage and um, different herbs that we use in cooking and um, also taking care of babies. And so through the Georgetown program, I opened up more to learning about the different medical systems around the world. And um, what actually piqued my interest during that program was the information that we didn't know about indigenous systems of knowledge or North American indigenous systems of knowledge when it comes to medicine, but also at the same time, knowing that they exist after being raised in those communities. And so that's kind of like shaped my interest in addressing those gaps while also acknowledging that there are certain things that we can't share about our culture, about our community with the broad audience. But that's a little bit about where I'm at in my career right now. Mm -hmm. So a lot of underpinnings of just the own process of you growing up and observing and seeing and watching, and then a lot of awareness just um, augmented through learning in Georgetown and can you tell us a bit about how you see the value and challenges of understanding and embracing cultural traditions, just really big picture? What is your perspective on, you know, where the value really is? Well, especially for Indigenous communities, I think it's so important to connect with cultural traditions because there's health benefits to it. There's mental health benefits to it. There's spiritual benefits do it and it's been proven time and time again not just through western research but just in observational research that we see when we go to ceremony when we take people who are affected by hardship to ceremony they get better and so I think it's so important for people to remain connected and maintaining that ancestral connection and also recognizing that in the United States, Native American people weren't always allowed to practice their traditional practices or their spiritual practices until the Native American Religious Freedom Act was passed. And so there's a little bit of this is an act of resistance for me to be able to do these things and for me to be able to practice these um, traditions. Mm -hmm. Could you unpack that word ceremony for us when you say ceremony? What are you what are you talking about there? What are you referring to? Sure. Um, different people would define it different ways in, in my community. And the way that, that I would define it is a gathering of people from different well, from your from my tribe. And sometimes we invite guests from other communities as well or from different tribes. But it's just a gathering, and we usually gather around um, special times during the seasons, um, particularly around the solstices and uh, the equinox. And um, we, we gather and we honor um, creation, we honor each other, and we throw our burdens into, um, into the fire, so to speak. And um, it's just about kinship, it's about community, it's about um, 
collective appreciation. Could you speak to a couple of examples, perhaps, of how either ceremony or some traditional modalities that you've grown up with or been exposed to, how you feel they contribute to both individual and collective healing? Sure. And that's a a really good question. And I'm a little bit wary about um, talking specifically about the details of each ceremony because there is like this protectiveness over those ceremonies um, within the community. But I will say that um, we gather around a sacred fire and we honor the four directions. We honor all of creation. And again, we honor each other and we carry not only our own burdens, but our community burdens as well. So the things that we see in our communities day in and day out, or the things that we know are impacting our our community when we pray or when we acknowledge those things, we're not just acknowledging how they affect us, we're acknowledging how they affect the people who may not be there. And so there's um, there's this responsibility that comes along with it as well. And knowing that everyone isn't in the space to be in that and be in ceremony to be sharing those burdens to be or releasing those burdens in that space and time. But um, so that's just something to, to acknowledge to the fire, so to speak. It really sounds like there's this process that you go through together and there's some maybe interdependence and reliance within the group, within the community and in a lot of transformation, sounds like it might happen there in ceremony. Yes, um, absolutely. And on an individual level, on an interpersonal level, and on a collective level as well. So we're all working together to create a, a, a cleaner space, a better space for all of us to live, for all of us to thrive and grow. Mm-hmm. Sense of unity, it sounds like, is there. So, Amina, could you talk a bit about how the uh, role of Indigenous traditions can be both understood through and or contrasted with a Western paradigm of knowledge gathering? Yes, so Indigenous epistemology and ways of knowing is understood through oral traditions and knowledge is passed down and there's less emphasis on writing things and there's actually as I was alluding to earlier, kind of a protectiveness, uh, a built-in protectiveness when things are passed in that way. And it's more holistic and it recognizes the interconnectedness of, of all things and all beings. And Western knowledge, on the other hand, is more so about categorizing and taking more of a reductionist approach to understanding things. And I also think that Western epistemology has this inclination to study other people, which is odd. And particularly they study indigenous populations and their knowledge. And to me, that reeks of dehumanization. There's a a term that we hear sometimes and read sometimes, uh, appropriation or misappropriation. Could you walk us through what those terms mean, um, how you understand them, how those terms could be defined? So appropriation is more so intentionally taking something and passing it off as something that's yours. 
and not acknowledging the original source or of where that thing may have come from. And the way I understand misappropriation is taking something and profiting from it without crediting or share it, sharing adequate benefits with the knowledge source. Are there a couple of examples that come to mind or that you're aware of, of, um, you know, commercial or cultural misappropriation? The first one that comes to mind, and this is probably the most popular one, is SAGE. And um, there is documented use of SAGE from different indigenous groups across the world, but um, particularly I'm talking about white SAGE and how it's been kind of commodified and mass produced and it's actually becoming depleted in some areas now, which is a huge problem because we need this medicine to practice our ceremonies. We need this medicine to um, for, for our communities to, to um, work together. And I also think that when sage and some of these other medicines that I'll talk about also, when they're not harvested in the right way during the right season, or when they're not cared for in the right way, that they don't have the same impact, that something that has been cared for, that has been harvested correctly, that um, isn't a modified seed or anything like that, um, would would have the quality that the the latter would have. And then other ones, I would also say um, ayahuasca is a big one. And there's actually, a patent issue with ayahuasca. So I I don't know if people listening have heard of divine and it's a patented form of ayahuasca. So this guy went to South America. He went to one ayahuasca ceremony, came back, he patented the plant and the tribe tried to um, fight him in court and they won the first time, but then he was able to restore the patent. And So this is just an example of what I call spiritual tourism and people just go, they go to these ceremonies, they exoticize these ceremonies and they feel that they have the entitlement to take these sacred medicines that have been passed down for generations and in different tribes or in different indigenous communities. And they think that they can pass it off and own it and take it as their own. And so that's the second big um, plant that I would say is largely culturally appropriated and also misappropriated in that case. And then the other ones, I would also say tobacco. Tobacco is sacred, but it's been turned into something that causes sickness. Um, It's been taken and Um, mass produced by tobacco companies and in the form of cigarettes, cigars, um, causing people to get sick. And um, that one's particularly frustrating for me because it is something that um, we use tobacco, we put tobacco down as an offering. So if we are, um, for example, if we come across some white sage that's growing naturally um, in, in Arizona or someplace, we would put tobacco down in place of the sage that we picked up as an honoring to mother earth. Um, so, you know, tobacco is a very um, sacred spiritual conduit to us. And I think that's something that needs to be talked about at, at more um, in that sense. And then the other one would be Palo Santo, which is similar to Sage and that is also being heavily commodified and appropriated. 
Mm-hmm. And really the examples you're giving are all examples in which knowledge has been gained in a way that then disadvantages the community in some way. Could you say more about that? Yeah, so so it sounds like um, when you're talking about misappropriation and, you know, add, add some more to this if it's helpful, um, but what really, you know, causes some of these examples to be so sad or damaging is that some of the, the value of the tradition, the history, um, some of the available benefit to the community where the tradition came from um, has been taken from them in some way or detracted from in some way. Right. Yeah. And I think another element to it is just a lack of respect in general. Mm-hmm. And it's just an extension of colonialism um, because like before the land, before the land, the products of the land were devalued, the people were devalued first. And I think that's mm-hmm. important. Um to make. Yeah, thank you for that. Given that there is, you know, some of these practices and, you know, something like white sage, for example, um, you know, could really have, of course, true benefit. It's been used for so many years in in such a, um, you know, kind of honored, honored and traditional way. Share your perspectives on how we can learn from and adapt different traditional indigenous practices while respecting the source of some of those wisdom traditions. Absolutely. I think, um, well, to start, I think the best way to receive medicine is as a gift. So if someone gives you sage, or someone gives you sweet grass, or someone gives you tobacco or cedar, that's, that's obviously yours to use. And I also think that like amongst my friends, we trade. So when I named those four sacred herbs, sage, sweetgrass, cedar, and tobacco, they also correlate with the four directions. And so in each direction that it, that each herb represents or the color that it's associated with, it happens to also grow the best in those areas. And there's different strains of those plants that, that grow different places of each of those four plants that grow in the different areas as well. But um, the what I consider the, the most potent or the, the best place to grow those things are they correlate with those four directions. And that's something that the audience could, could Google and look up and see the correlation between those herbs, those colors and the medicine wheel. But um, so what I do with my friends who live in different areas of the country is we'll trade. So in my area on the East Coast, there's tobacco grows here in the Southeast very well. So I'll trade tobacco with some of my friends out West who they're, they're closer to really high quality sweetgrass. And I love sweetgrass. So um, that's just, that's another thing that um, we do amongst community. And um, I, I think that it's, it's a beautiful blessing and it makes it that much more special when you receive it that way, because it's something that you don't always have access to. And I think that's something that people should also acknowledge. Like this is, it makes it that much more valuable in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I think if you absolutely have to buy some medicine, like if you really need it, if your spirit is like calling for it, then 
I highly recommend buying it from an indigenous source because as I was talking about mm-hmm. earlier, an indigenous source is more likely to grow it during the proper in the proper way and harvest it during the proper season. And also um, they say certain prayers over it. They um, take the time to really care for it in a different way than these more commodified forms of it. What about knowledge traditions? So if I can just share with you what I've heard and observed, I've seen that um, some some teachers in just you know different fields will take a moment to give credit to where they received their knowledge from as a way of honoring the source of that knowledge. So, so here's an example. So I understand that in some herbal medicine textbooks that there might be an idea that just starts to become really common knowledge, but then it can be challenging to be able to actually understand, okay, who said that first or, or where did that come from? And it seems or feels like if the original source gets lost, that the integrity of the truth is lost because you don't know where it's sourced from, where it came from, what the context was. And so, you know, as we think about building our own knowledge base and our our ways of understanding and knowing things just, you know, from different types of people and us were able to, yeah, just wondering your perspectives on that. Right. I think so being a science nerd that I am, I think I have a unique perspective on this because like I do kind of blend the Western, um, when I do research, you know, you're supposed to cite your sources. And so I think that's a beautiful practice. And I don't understand why that's not always offered to indigenous centric knowledge. I don't know if it's because knowledge, the knowledge is oral, but there are ways to report that it's, it's even in like, um, in academic citing, there's ways to record that you receive this knowledge from an interview or however you obtained it. It makes me think of um, how frustrating it actually is for particularly Indigenous scholars to, to face that because we know what's ours. Like we know what belonged to us and what still technically belongs to us. And I think the most frustrating part of doing any type of research, especially as it pertains to indigenous knowledge, is there's a lot of things that aren't there because of colonization. And there's a lot of things that were stolen from us. And so like holding space for that is a whole nother aspect of doing research. And it, we have to heavily rely on each other as a community um, and outside of the community to to work together to fill in the gaps in that knowledge. And I think even setting the intention to even ask the question, I wonder where this came from, or I wonder which indigenous tribe like did this first, because when it comes down to it, no matter what part of the world you're in, not even just North America or South America, there was some indigenous person and indigenous to whatever territory that you're looking at that plant from that knew that had the knowledge passed down to them of how to use that plant. So I think just, again, just asking the question or being willing to ask the question is a step to decolonization. 
What suggestions do you have for nutrition professionals or other healthcare professionals um, who wish to really understand and try to incorporate frameworks based on community values and indigenous perspectives that are not typically included in Western models? That's a great question. I think the first thing is just to ethically source your herbs and herbal supplements. And if it smells like misappropriation, it probably is, especially if you're with larger corporations, there's some type of exploitation there. And being able to question manufacturers about where they get their herbs from, how those herbs are harvested, whether or not they come from plants that regerminate um, are all good questions to ask. And it's also important to note that fair trade doesn't apply to indigenous people in the United States because it only covers farmers in developing countries. So that's just another side note, especially when we're talking about food um, and herbs. And I would also say to do your research on which tribes around you which tribes are around you. And because more than likely you'll be able to connect with someone who is a medicine keeper or who is a farmer who might um, grow herbs locally. And um, that will be the utmost or the, the best way to ethically source your herbs and herbal supplements. And then you're not only just, you're not, you're just not, you're not only getting a better quality product but you're also contributing to a rural or an indigenous or a black owned or another underrepresented group's business as well. So I think that's the best way to um, practice more inclusion and more consciousness in, in that field. Mm -hmm. So really asking questions and being aware. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to say or share before we close? Going back to the ceremonies, I think it's important for me to mention that there's open ceremonies and there's closed ceremonies. So for the ceremonies that are open, you would be invited to those ceremonies and people, everyone's welcome to those types of ceremonies. The closed ceremonies are more insulated with the tribal community. Um, so, but those are also the ones that you're not going to hear about. So, but if you're invited to, to something or if someone that, you know, is indigenous or, um, you, you hear about something and there's a community gathering, go interact with the people, go interact with the original people, go talk to, go talk to them, learn more about, um, what their day-to-day -day is like, learn more about the culture, learn more about the land, because I think that's the best way to make steps towards understanding the, mm -hmm. the issues and also the solutions. I mean, how can individuals locate a tribe close to them? There's an app for that. Unsurprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen an app for that. It's called the Native Land app. And Native yeah, it, it includes um, the majority of the tribes that are um, occupying certain territories and even tribes that used to occupy certain territories. And another thing that you could talk to Indigenous people about in your area is whether or not 
the land that they're occupying currently is the land that they've been originally on because um, there's also this issue of the removal period when tribes are removed from their ancestral lands and taken somewhere else. And there was also this, this trauma with that being disconnected from your ancestral lands and having to make do with another group's ancestral lands. And so there's like still some, there's a lot of healing that's taking place in, um, and some of those communities. So just being under, being understanding and being aware of, of things like that and um, the complexities of it. Okay. Well, Amina, thank you so much for sharing your perspective and, and some guidance for us. Would you like to close with, um, with a quote or a poem, a phrase that, um, that captures the spirit of our discussion? Yeah, sure. So I actually have two. So my first is from my mentor, who actually quoted this from another Indigenous mentor, but his name is Tommy Lewoon. And I work with him and um, another research partner who is uh, Northern Cheyenne. Her name is Cinnamon Killsburst. And we're working on this initiative called Breast Together for a Change. And one of the two of the things that we do with our program is we're simultaneously addressing how to stop perpetration while also healing trauma. So we're using meditations to do that. And one of the things that we say to our participants, whether they're on the stopping perpetration side or the healing side is you have to feel it to heal it. So you have to feel the impacts of racism on either side and understanding that in order to heal it, you have to feel it. And then the second quote I have is from an author that I've really admired. His name is Young Pueblo. He's um, pretty popular on Instagram. And um, he says, the world itself is currently shifting from being ruled by fear of ego to being liberated by the love of consciousness. What we face internally is a microcosm of what humanity faces globally. This is why growing our self-love is a medicine for our earth. It's beautiful. Amina, if people are wanting to stay connected with you, how can they find you? So my Instagram is good underscore medicine woman. And I also have a website, goodmedicinewoman.com. And you can have me on Facebook, Amina Shanegapar. And that's how you can find me. Wonderful. Amina, thank you for your time. Thank you for generosity and wishing you and your work well. Thank you so much. For more information about evidence-based resources in integrative, holistic, and functional medicine, visit the Dietitians in Integrative and Functional Medicine website at integrativerd.org. If you have enjoyed this episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast app to continue learning about diversity in nutrition practice and perspectives.